Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You here at the conference that I've heard so much about over the years, and it's a privilege to me to be able to minister God's Word among you here. Look forward to getting to know some of you in the break. and have already rejoiced to meet some of you uh, prior to this time. In your packet that you received as you registered, you have an outline to this morning's lecture. The topic I'll be speaking on this morning is Bible prophecy, an invitation to hope. I believe that Scripture presents for us in the Word of God a hope-filled prophetic outlook, that our future is bright with hope because our future has God in it. I believe that biblical eschatology, that is, the prophecies ordained in Scripture, teaches that Christ established His kingdom in the first century. We're not to await for it at some future date. He did establish it. When He defeated Satan at the cross, and then having established His kingdom, He is the great King of kings and Lord of lords, commissioned His disciples with what we call the Great Commission on the basis of all authority in heaven, And on earth, he says, go and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them all things I have taught you. And then he promised his disciples that, lo, I'm with you even unto the end. In other words, that you might get it done. I believe that Christ's kingdom, established in the first century and commissioned to his disciples and to us, is to grow gradually over time as more and more converts are won by the gospel of Christ, properly preached. I believe that after a significant portion of the human race has been won to Christ, that Christianity will come to dominance and that Christianity will establish a long era of righteousness, peace, and prosperity. And then after that long era of righteousness, peace, and prosperity, the Lord Jesus Christ will return bodily and visibly and gloriously to resurrect the dead and to judge all men and to establish eternity. Consequently, On the basis of this hope-filled eschatological perspective, I also believe that your labor is not in vain in the Lord, that the things you're learning here at your churches, at your homes, and elsewhere are things that you can put to use for the glory of God and for the proclamation of His gospel and the expansion of His kingdom in the earth, that you're not just waiting for the Lord to do it all in the future, but that He has commissioned you and you're ambassadors for Christ and that you have a task before you. Now, this hope-filled eschatological outlook that I'll be declaring this morning, you would think would be something of a delight to Christians and that the Christian community and the Christian bookstores would be filled with notions of rejoicing in terms of the hope that lies before us. You would think that this idea of uh, a commission to a hope-filled conquest of the world for Christ would be something that would be rejoiced in by one and all. However, in broad evangelicalism today, we find that more people delight in despair than in the duties of righteousness. Because we have sayings such as this by R.A. Torrey, a good man of God, but nevertheless holding a different uh, prophetic outlook. He says, the darker the night gets, the lighter my heart gets. And what he meant by that was, The worse things get, the more likely it is Christ is about to return. Hal Lindsey, a very popular writer today, has said, We ought to live like people who do not expect to be around much longer. We ought to live, therefore, with anticipation. In other words, on that worldview, you're wasting your time coming to this worldview conference because this conference is teaching you things for the long run, not teaching you to expect to exit out of here very shortly and very quickly. Social decline in that perspective is good news. If the Antichrist is near, then Christ also is near, and thus things are well. Well, I want to defend this morning the notion of prophetic hope for the future, a prophetic hope 
that engages your labor for Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, in the hour I have before us, we don't have time to do much more than scratch the surface. And so I've titled this lecture, An Invitation to Hope. I hope that you will perhaps get some of the literature back here and read more on this topic. Uh, for instance, have a book back there, He Shall Have Dominion, which is 600 pages long, which is uh, declaring and outlining this hope. And perhaps you might find that a uh, worthy task. So come, let us reason together regarding this invitation to hope. I'd like to begin first by considering creation and hope. I'm convinced that if we're going to consider the outcome of history, it's very important that we get our bearings regarding the very beginning of history, that consummation and creation are related. They're both ordained of God and they're connected uh, by means of the Word of God and the providence of God. And consequently, to understand the end, we must understand the beginning. Let's notice in this regard first that God creates the world to bring himself glory. God created the world, according to Genesis 1.31, very good. And the reason he created it very good is because God himself is very good. And he would create a world that his glory would be exhibited in, in righteousness, peace, prosperity, and things of this sort. In Romans 11.36, we find these words of Paul. He says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. Romans 11.36. Revelation 4.11 says, Thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Psalm 24.1, which, by the way, is repeated over a dozen times elsewhere in Scripture, says, The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and all the people therein. God created this world for his own glory, for his self-glory, because he is an all-glorious God. Why is it that Christians do not think that God will realize his creational purpose in the world? Why do we as Christians too often give up on history and simply hope to be taken out of this world and abandon history uh, to the humanists and the God-deniers and God-haters? Undoubtedly, it is true among men that the best laid plans of mice and men often go astray. Certainly, we recognize that. But surely this is not true for God, that he has created a world to bring him positive glory, and surely he will get that glory and establish his righteousness in the earth. Isaiah 46.10, in fact, says that he declares the end from the beginning, and he says, my counsel shall stand... I will do all my pleasure. And so as we look at creation and hope, we need to note first that God created the world for his glory and that he intends to get positive, righteous glory in history and in time and on earth. And secondly, under this notion of creation and hope, we find that God created man in his image. In other words, he created God or created man as a mirror to reflect God in the world on a creaturely level. Man is in the image of God. Genesis 1.26 says, Let us make man in our image and let him have dominion. Now what does the image of God have to do with history? Well, notice the verse says very clearly, this is not an intrusion upon the text, but this is an exegesis of the text, it said, let us make man in our image and let him have dominion. God is the creator of all things and he has ultimate dominion. He has created his vice regent, his vice president, as it were, man, to reflect him and to exercise a godly dominion in the earth. And thus, the image of God in man not only reflects God's moral uh, rectitude and things of this sort, but as the text says, it is to reflect God's dominion in the world. In other words, we as creatures created in the image of God have a creational impulse to expand culture in the world. The secular humanists define man oftentimes as homo sapiens, which means man the thinker. Or some others would declare man to be homo ludens, man the player, meaning that man can work and set aside time to, for rest and recreation. He can organize his time. However, we as Christians believe in man homo imago dei, man the image of God. 
as a creature who reflects the Creator and is called to a culture-building task. In fact, in Genesis 4, not long after the creation of Adam and Eve, we find man already uh, herding cattle together, already making metal, already creating music, and creating harps and things, uh, lyres and things to play upon, wonderful and glorious music. Man was not a knuckle-dragging, ape-like creature in the beginning. He was a culture-building creature from the very beginning because he was in the image of God. Uh, the degradation of man so that there became men of uh, lower status and standards and things of that sort is the consequence of the entry of sin. It's not a result of the original creative activity of God. This fits with the prophetic hope for the future that God created the world to bring himself glory and that he created man to reflect his glory into the world and to exercise culture-building dominion, this would lead us, as we consider creation, to contemplate the consummation as the ultimate outworking of the principles of righteousness, holiness, and truth that God has ordained. And a third aspect of creation and hope we need to recognize is that God also establishes redemption immediately upon man's fall. Immediately after Adam rebelled against God, God comes in and establishes redemption. He divinely ordains the factors of redemption so that men, the image of God, might uh, promote a righteous dominion in the earth. Regarding the historical long run, Many evangelicals today are in despair. The darker the night gets, the lighter the heart gets, they say, because they point to the fall. They say, how can you hope for any better in the history of man? Adam fell, and because of that, we're born totally depraved sinners. In every facet of our being, in body, mind, soul, and strength, we're sinners. How can we have hope for the future? Well, you cannot have hope if you point back only to the fall. You must point forward to the resurrection of Christ to redemption. The resurrection is more powerful than the fall. In Genesis 3.15, immediately after the fall of Adam, we read these words, God speaking to Satan through the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise your head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now notice the bruising of a head, the crushing of the head is a more severe pain than the bruising of the heel. And the idea here is called the proto-evangelium, that is, the first promise of the gospel. Here is the promise that Satan will be crushed, that Christ, the ultimate seed of the woman, will be the victor. Now, in this proto-evangelium, we find several things. One is that we find the ordaining of historical struggle. There is enmity that God ordains between righteousness and evil, between Christ and Satan in history. We find that ordained here. We are well aware of the struggle of history. But, since creation itself is historical, indeed it brings into being history, since culture building, which is an uh, outworking of the image of God in man, is historical, since the struggle between good and evil is, is historical, we believe that the crushing of Satan to victory will also be historical. It occurs in the same arena, in history, as God has ordained. And thus, God created the world for his glory, established man in the world as the image of God to exercise godly dominion in the world, and then when man rebelled, God immediately set about repairing the rebellion by establishing the proto-evangelium, the hope of the gospel, and the redemptive process. And so the question we have to raise in this regard is, Will God realize his, history, his purpose in history? Will the resurrection of Christ overwhelm the fall of Adam? Well, secondly, let's consider covenant and hope. And in the first place, under covenant and hope, let's consider covenant and promise. We need to recognize as Christians, Bible-believing Christians, that all covenants are one in principle. And that principle is the principle of the promise principle of promise. Paul states such in Ephesians 2.12. There he speaks of the covenant, plural, 
of the promise, singular. Notice how he subsumes all covenants under one principle. The multifarious covenants are to realize the singular promise. One of the great covenants of the Old Testament, which is referred to frequently in the New and which every Christian, I would think, would be very familiar with, is the Abrahamic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant, we're going to find as we get into it a little bit, will continue the creation hope and the redemptive glory that is to come to God. What does this covenant expect? In Genesis 12, we have the revelation of God's covenant with Abraham. And in verse 3, we read these words. In thee, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That is a covenantal promise. In Abraham, that is, in people of like faith as Abraham, who believed God and God accounted unto him for righteousness, in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And this promise is the foundation, really, of the New Testament and is frequently referred to there. Notice the scope. In thee, all the families of the earth, not many here and there, but all the families of the earth will be blessed. So that Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, could say, referring back to Abraham in Romans 4.13, uh, he says he had the promise that he was to be the heir of the world. All the families the world are to receive blessings. And this is speaking of a universal hope for the people of God in terms of covenant. And then secondly, under the covenant of hope, we have covenant and confirmation. This victory of hope is confirmed to Abraham later as the Abrahamic covenant is expanded and God elaborates and fills it out and fleshes it out for Abraham. We find in Genesis 22, verse 17, for instance, God saying, Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you, and your seed shall possess the gate of the enemy. Now, that would have to result from the fact of Genesis 12, 3, says all the families of the earth will be blessed because of you. Well, here we find that all the enemies will have their gates possessed by Abraham. In other words, uh, the Abrahamic faith will overcome the enemy. In the Old Testament era indeed in antiquity, the gates of a city were places of two important realities. One was they were places of defense. You had to defend your gates because the walls would keep intruders out and it's only through the gates that they could come in easily. So that was a place of defense. And then also the gates, because of the prominence for defense, were places for the administration of justice. And here we find that God says, your seed shall possess the gates of the enemy. In other words, the Abrahamic covenant promises the overthrow of the enemy for the expulsion of unrighteousness and the establishing of the people of God. I believe Christ is somewhat reflecting upon this notion in Matthew 15, verse 18, or 18, verse 15, where he says, Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now notice the gates are not moving equipment in an army. They're set and established borders around the kingdom of the enemy. The idea here, the picture here, is that the gates of hell are trying to stand up against the assault of the church of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, the gates of hell, Satan's gates, will not be able to withstand the onslaught. The gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Satan and his defenses and in his injustice and unrighteousness in the earth, will be overcome. The covenant is to overwhelm them through the seed of the covenant, who is Jesus Christ. And thirdly, under covenant and hope, we have covenant and victory. God develops a new covenant. Now remember, all covenants are one in principle, and thus all the covenants of the Old Testament are kind of like an onion, that the, the outer uh, the later covenants are the outer skin of the onion and you peel them back further and further and you get to the seed covenant. Well, in the, new, in the New Testament period, we have the new covenant. And there we read, and I'm going to tell you what we're going to read first so that you'll be listening for it. We read, we discover in the Word of God that the new covenant is to establish an unshakable kingdom and that unshakable kingdom is established in the first century not in the last. 
Hebrews 12, verses 24 through 29. And I'll kind of skip through that passage. You have come to Jesus. Notice he's speaking in the past tense, well, in the perfect tense. You have come. That is, at this point in time, you have already come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And notice the promise. On down in the passage he says, Now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that can be shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Now the shaking of the things that can be shaken, the created things, he's speaking of the temple order. The temple is about to be destroyed in just a few years. He says that will be shaken down and all the implements of the temple service will be done away with. Why? Because then will be established permanently the kingdom of Jesus Christ which cannot be shaken. Rome could attack the heart of Israel, destroy their temple, and ruin their worship. No nation, no king, no power can attack the heart of Christianity and ruin our worship. We can worship wherever we please, as Jesus told the woman at the well. And thus, in covenant and victory, we find that in the new covenant, God promises that we have an unshakable kingdom. And he promised that, and he told through the writer of Hebrews, the Christians of the first century, you are presently right now receiving that, not to await it in the future. The covenant is to include all people, according to the Abrahamic uh, statement, is to overcome satanic defenses, it's to establish an unshakable presence in the earth. The historical covenant point to a historical hope, an unshakable hope, and that hope is Christendom. That hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, thirdly, let's, let's consider prophecy and hope. If you want to, you could be turning to Isaiah 2. I will read that passage, just a brief portion of it, as one sample of prophecy, since we don't have time to go into a lot of detail. But God's prophetic announcement that we're about to read is in harmony with what we've learned of the creation hope and of the covenantal promise. We'll find now that as we get into the prophets, they're declaring the same thing, as we might expect. Now, many prophecies speak of the hope of the gospel and conquest of Jesus Christ. I want to focus just on this one because of time constraints, but I do believe it is a very clear and compelling passage that would be very helpful to us in establishing our Christian worldview. Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4, read thus. In the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. And all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Well, the first thing we need to consider here in this passage because it's the first thing brought up to us is when does he expect this prophecy to come to pass? So first, let's notice the prophetic time frame. Now, it's important to understand the biblical structure of eschatology, that is, of prophecy. Isaiah 2.2 says, It shall come to pass in the last days. Well, now the question arises, when are the last days? And that has to be resolved before we can discover when this glorious promise is to result. Well, let me tell you up front, and then I'll read the Scripture for support. The last days begin with the first coming of Christ. Christ, as our calendar says, divides history into B.C. and A.D., and that's appropriate theologically and biblically and covenantally. And so we have the coming of Christ in the first century so that you have the former days that lead up to him and then the last days that follow after him, and then the last day you have the resurrection. And so since the first century until the second coming of Christ, in other words, between the two advents of Christ, the first and second advent, we have the period that Scripture calls the last day. It also calls it other things, such as the kingdom of heaven and, and the millennium and other things. But right now we're looking at the last day. Now, 
listen carefully to the New Testament, how the New Testament speaks of its own time as being a portion of the last days. In Acts 2, verses 16 and 17, as the people began speaking in tongues and the great marvel of Pentecost occurs, Peter stands up and says, and quote from um, Joel, and he says, this was spoken by Joel, it will come to pass in the last days. And so Peter is saying, that which you're experiencing now was prophesied by Joel, it wouldn't come to pass until the last days, and it is now coming to pass, therefore we're in the last days. 1 Corinthians 10.11, Paul says, this happened to them, and he's speaking of the Old Testament people of God, this happened to them for an example and is written for our admonition on whom the ends of the world have come, which is to say, the last days have come. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, divides history in two uh, very appropriately when we read these words, God, who in sundry times and diverse manners spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. And Hebrews 9:26 is uh, another passage. And so, the last days begin in the first century. We've been in the last days since the coming of Christ. Until the return of Christ, we're in that era that is called by Scripture the last days. Isaiah's prophecy promises that something will be fulfilled, and notice what it says in Isaiah 2, in the last days. Now the Hebrew there, base, means during the process of, during the last days. That is, during the last days, consequently before the last day, these events will occur. Before any new historical era, these things will occur. Before eternity, these things will occur. During the last days, in time and on earth. Well, what is to occur? Well, secondly, uh, prophetic exaltation. Notice verse 2. What happens in the last days? The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established. Now, in the Hebrew, the word order is emphasized. In Hebrew, it's an inflected language, which means it can move its verbs and nouns back and forth wherever is appropriate for emphasis. Well, in the Hebrew, it says, Established shall be the mountain of the house of the Lord. Throwing established to the front of the phrase there to underscore the significance of the establishing of uh, this entity. And the Hebrew word there for established means of permanent duration. And it's intensified. It doesn't just say established, but it says established shall be. And so there is a certainty to it. It shall be established. Well, what shall be established? The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established the chief of the mountains. And then in verse uh, 3, we also read of Mount Zion and Jerusalem and people flowing into that. Well, what is the meaning of all this? The mountain of the house of the Lord, Mount Zion and Jerusalem. What is he talking about here? Is he talking about those literal places over there in Palestine? Well, he is not. These are images of the kingdom of God. Hebrews 12, verse 22 says to the first century Christians who, and he's writing to Hebrews obviously, uh, who are who are professed faith in Christ he says, you are come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem and notice the Mount Zion mentioned in the passage Isaiah 2 and Jerusalem also mentioned there, the first century Christians have come to that because the last days have come, the typological Mount Zion the symbolic Jerusalem, which are historical realities, give way to the permanent, antitypical Mount Zion, Jerusalem. And Hebrews 12:28, remember, says, after they have come to Mount Zion, he says, we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established, a permanent duration. We are receiving that in the first century, Hebrews says, in other passages. And thus, we find this is all going on in the present. So during the last days, before Christ comes again, we will see this as a permanent establishment. Well, let's read on. Verse 2 says, 
that it will be established as the chief of the mountains and raised above the hills. The idea here is that Christianity, Christendom, Christian culture, that flows forth from the gospel of Christ, rooted in the word of God, Christianity will come to a place of dominance and influence in the affairs of men so that it will be exalted above the mountains. All the other mountains in the world, as it were, and again, this is not literal. He's not talking about a mountain becoming higher than the Himalayas. He's talking about the mountain of the house of the Lord being exalted and lifted up above all other mountains. The redemptive kingdom, which began lowly in the ministry of Christ, is not to remain lowly. Because during the progress of the last days, Isaiah says, that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be thrust up in a state of dominion and exaltation. The mountain of the house of the Lord. And the significance of the Lord's house, the temple, in the Old Testament was that's where God's special presence was. The priest, the high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies one time a year because God's presence dwelled there in uh, an important way. Find that the temple is being rebuilt in that we are living stones being placed in that temple, 1 Peter 2, verses 5 and 9 tell us. That we are the temple of God, 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6, and uh, 2 Corinthians 6 also tell us. We are the temple of God. The mountain of the house of the Lord, that is the people of God, wherein dwells God and His Spirit, will be exalted above all. And then, having looked at the prophetic time frame, the prophetic exaltation, let us notice also the prophetic method. How shall the mountain of the house of the Lord be exalted? Verses 2 and 3 say, All nations, remember the promise, all the families of the earth to Abraham, all nations shall flow into it. Many people shall say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of, of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. The gospel victory is to overwhelm all nations. This speaks of evangelistic success throughout all the nations of the earth. This speaks also of discipleship. These people are flowing into the kingdom of God saying, let us go there that we might learn his ways and he will teach us of his law. And the great commission is given against just such a prophetic backdrop when Jesus says, go and make disciples of all the nations teaching them whatsoever I've taught you. That's in essence what is being prophesied here by the prophet Isaiah. And then fourthly under this, let us consider prophetic results. Verses 3 and 4. Out of Zion will go forth the law and the word of God from Jerusalem, and he will judge among the nations and rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, etc. This is the result of the prophetic hope. This is the consequence of worldwide evangelism Worldwide discipleship, worldwide instruction in the things of God. What is the result? Evangelism leads to conversion of men who flow into the kingdom, who are discipled after the principles of God's word, and a transformed society ensues. That is, men will begin looking at their metal instruments and saying, this would be put to better use to make plows and implements of peace. And therefore, transformed society with Christianity reigning supreme in the world will bring peace to the earth. And remember, in the last days, not after the last days, but in the last days, this will happen by the gospel of Christ. This will not happen after the battle of Armageddon has ended the last days and then Christ imposes the kingdom upon the earth. This will flow forth from the gospel in the era that we are now living in. Well, fourthly, let us consider the kingdom and hope. Now, the creation establishes the historical arena of righteousness. The covenant establishes the legal framework of righteousness and hope. Prophecy establishes the teleological direction of righteousness and hope. And now let us note that uh, redemption uh, begins uh, the era of hope. Christ establishes the kingdom to begin in the first century the actual progress to universal victory. Now Jesus does establish the kingdom in the New Testament. We find when he first comes on the scene in Mark 1, verse 15, as he introduces himself to the public in his ministry, he says the time is fulfilled. Not the time might be, or I hope it is, 
Or it is if you think so, but if you don't, I'll have to wait till later. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. The Greek word ingus means at length. It means at arm, at length, at arm's length. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled, and because the prophetic time has been fulfilled and the last days are, are looming upon them, then the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. In Matthew twelve twenty eight, later in his ministry, he says, If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It came near in the early ministry of Christ, and as he began casting out demons and proclaiming the gospel, he says, If I'm doing this by the power of God, then, as a consequence, you know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. But what will be the effect of this kingdom which Christ established in the first century? Will it realize God's creational purpose? Will it secure God's covenantal promises? Will it fulfill the prophetic expectation? Now, this is very important to understand. Oftentimes we speak, and rightly so if we speak in a proper covenantal way, but oftentimes we say, Christ is my personal Savior. Well, thank God that He is our personal Savior. But that's not the whole story. Christ is not an individualistic Savior. In fact, Christ has come to save this world. The historical effect of Christ's redeeming activity is to save individuals here and there, but that's not the whole story. We are put into a body of Christ, a covenantal community, and the community is to grow and to become uh, the kingdom of God spread throughout all the earth. The glorious description of Christ's kingdom is that it is to be global. Christ is not a local savior. He's not a tribal deity. He has come to save this world. And let's see how this is so. I'm going to hopefully get to what Christ says and what Paul says. My time runs out. We'll just do what Christ says. Okay, first, Christ and kingdom hope. Let's notice first, and you might want to be turning to John 12, or perhaps you can just listen if that might be inconvenient to turn there. But first, let's notice Christ's judgment of the world. In John 12, verses 31 and 32, we read these words. Now, judgment is upon this world. Now, the ruler of this world should be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Now, let's see what's going on here. As Christ faces the cross, in John 12, he's getting very close. The shadow of the cross is all around him. He says, now is the judgment of this world. The death of Christ was no accident. It was all a part of the redemptive plan of God. That's why when Christ's ministry began, he says the time is fulfilled. The prophetic time is fulfilled. The kingdom's at hand. And we find that this prophetic or this redemptive kingdom had its ground laid in Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium, the first promise of the gospel. And this kingdom was for a great purpose. It was to fill the creational purpose, the covenantal purpose, and the prophetic purpose. That is, to bring, in, in fact, to establish hope in the world. Well, what does the first part of John 12, 31 mean? He says, now is the judgment of this world. There are three ways that you can uh, interpret this word judgment. It can mean a wrong corrected. Like when somebody goes to court and they've stolen some money, and the judge makes a decree that you've got to pay the money back. That's a wrong corrected. Or it can speak of utter condemnation, like in the case of a murderer, when the judge sounds, lays the gavel down and says, you are condemned to die. That's utter condemnation. That's a judgment also. Or it can mean to correct by restructuring. I believe that it means to correct by restructuring. And if you're interested in reading this view, you might read Calvin's commentary here on John 12:31. This is his view, and I derived it from him. I believe that Christ is saying, now the task of restructuring the world after the image of God has come. Let's notice how this is so. If this word judgment means condemnation, if he is saying now is the condemnation of this world, then it contradicts the same gospel that says in John 3.17, for God has not sent his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. In important respects, John 3.17 parallels John 12.31 and 32. Let me read those in conjunction.
John 12, 31, 32. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. And if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. John 3.17 God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. I will draw all men to myself. The world shall be saved. These are statements of Christ. And these are typical statements of Christ. When you read John's theology, John brings this to the fore on many occasions. And so... The word judgment cannot mean condemnation because it would bring Christ's words into contradiction against his earlier words. Furthermore, we know that it means to restructure because what Jesus is here facing is the cross whereby he gives his life as a ransom for sin and therefore he's looking for redemption. And so as he's facing the cross, he's securing redemption. And redemption involves remaking. In fact, Paul says this so strongly in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This salvation that we have is a remaking of our fallenness to make us and to correct us in terms of righteousness, to renew us in the image of God according to righteousness. And so the very nature of redemption is that it is a remaking and thus, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Old things are passed away, all things are become new. We're remade. Furthermore, this redemptive kingdom that Christ is looking toward as he sees beyond the cross to the establishment of righteousness is declared by Christ to be uh, like a mustard seed. In Matthew 13.33, or, or excuse me, like leaven. There he says, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman hid in three measures of meal until all was leavened. What Christ is going to do at the cross and the resurrection and ascension is to establish redemption in the world. And the idea is it might come in little at first, but it will work until all is leavened. Furthermore, we know that this uh, concept of judgment must imply the notion of restructuring of the earth according to the righteous pattern of God because the Great Commission commands such. In Matthew 12... Or 28, verses 18 and 19, we read, Christ saying, and notice how he begins declaring he has the right, and then he ends saying, I'll be with you to see that it's done. He says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have taught you, and lo, I am with you until the end. I have the authority to command it, Go make disciples of all the nations, teaching them all things I taught you. I'll be with you to see that it's done. And Christ taught us things regarding daily life as well as salvific life. He taught us things regarding a Christian worldview. And we are commissioned to go and make the world as disciples of this Christ. To baptize them, to instruct them, so that, as a matter of fact, 2 Corinthians 10.5 must prevail. We are casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Not just thoughts on Sunday, not just thoughts in the home, although those are central and the starting point, but all thoughts in whatever area of life you are called to. You're to submit every thought, every field of learning, every endeavor to the knowledge of God through Jesus Christ. And thus, when Christ sees the cross, he doesn't see it in despair. He says, now is the judgment of this world. I will remake this world according to the creational, covenantal, prophetic pattern of God. My redemption will overwhelm this place. Well, secondly under this, let's look at Christ's dethronement of Satan. Christ's kingly glorification does not await the second advent. His kingly glorification, his enthronement, is secured at the resurrection and ascension. In John 12, verses 23 and 24, he says, The hour has come. Notice the time frame here. The hour has come that the Son of Man shall be glorified. And then he speaks of dying and bearing fruit. The time is approaching. The hour is now, says Jesus. The ordained time in God's plan. It's not off in the distant future. It's not 2,000 years away. Jesus says, now I will be glorified. 
And this now also secures something else. Not only now is the judgment upon this world, but now the ruler of this world will be cast out. The latter part of John 12:31 says. And so history is looked at not only in terms of uh, the previous days, former times, and the last days as a uh, calendrical structuring device, but it's also conceived of as the world in which two rulers are competing for dominance. And the decisive battle time has come, says Jesus. In the previous time, before the coming of Christ, B.C., before Christ, the true knowledge of God was limited virtually to Israel alone. Psalm 147, verses 19 and 20 say, He declares His word to Jacob, His statutes and His judgments to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. As for His judgments, they have not known them. Amos 3, 2 says, You only have a known of all the families of the earth. That is, you only have a love of all the families of the earth. Before Christ, Satan had dominion in the world under God's ultimate providential authority, of course. But God allowed Satan's dominion in the world. In fact, when Satan tempts Christ, in Luke 4, verse 6, we read, The devil said to him, All this authority of the kingdoms of the earth I will give to you in their glory, for it has been delivered to me. Christ did not dispute him in terms of the fact that he was uh, the God of this world, as Paul says in a later setting. But now we read that the Satan, who is the ruler of this world, will be cast out by Jesus Christ. Now, he says, not later, but now he'll be cast out. And this is a dramatic, redemptive event. The back of Satan is broken in the first century. And this is a frequent New Testament theme. I want you to note, I'm going to read a series of verses. Perhaps you'll jot down the references. But I want you to notice that the one we're reading says Satan's cast out. But read the, or notice the other images used of Satan's diminishing because of Christ. Matthew 12, 28 and 29. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or else how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? Luke 10, 18. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Colossians 2, 15. He disarmed principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. In that the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, the devil. 1 John 3, 8. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And so notice, in terms of Christ's effective redemption, Satan is said to be cast out, to be bound, to be disarmed, to fall, to be destroyed. The Christian hope necessarily requires the overthrow of Satan and his kingdom, and Christ effected this in the first century. Since Christ's coming, we have the progress of the gospel going out into the world. And we have proof of that by you Gentiles, I suppose probably 99% of you are Gentile extraction. There may be some who are born Jews. But the fact is, if you're a Gentile, you're a proof that the gospel has now overflowed the borders of Israel and has broken through the constraints of olden days. And the gospel is freeing men and is growing in the world. You have power over Satan. James 4, 7 says you can resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Well, thirdly, Christ's enthronement over men. And now the hope really takes off. Verse 32 says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Notice here, all. Not just the Jews. Not a remnant. Not plucking brands from the fire. But he speaks globally. He speaks globally of his conquest. The chains of Satan over men have been broken. The gospel is now given free reign in the earth to go out and to conquer the souls of men. The cross and the resurrection were historical events that are going to have historical consequences. Christ wins the legal victory at the cross. In Eden, Adam lost the human race. At the cross, Christ regained it. Not that all men are saved at that point in time, certainly, but the fact is, legally, he affected the salvation of men which is to come. Remember Christ's 
ministry. He began with an approaching kingdom, and then later in his ministry he speaks of its firm establishment. The kingdom will grow, and the Bible speaks of the growth of the kingdom under many images. In Daniel 2, it's a small stone that comes out of heaven that smites this ungodly image, and the stone becomes a great mountain. It grows from a stone to a great mountain. The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established. In Ezekiel 47, you see a vision of in the temple, and under the altar there comes forth from the altar of presence of God a stream of water that gradually gets up to the ankles, to the knees, to the waist, and then Ezekiel says it becomes a river that no man can cross, and it brings life to the trees on the banks. In Matthew 13, verses 31 and 32, Jesus declares of his kingdom, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field, which is the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air can come and nest in its branches. This little seed that a bird would not bother to eat because it was so small gives rise to a tree that's so large that the birds can now come and nest in its branches. The kingdom is a living principle. It has a growth, not only potential, but actuality within it. Kingdom expansion is the tendency, and the tendency is toward dominion, as Isaiah 2 says. The kingdom of Christ will grow universally. This is Christ's prophetic statement. It is forward-looking. Notice that Christ says confidently, if I am lifted up, and so we need to resolve the question, was Christ lifted up? And certainly he was. If I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. John 3.17 says, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him should be saved. 1 John 2.2 says, He himself is the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The idea is his redemption is not just for us, the small Christian community of the first century, but it is for the whole world. And there's coming a day when the whole world will be overflowed with the righteousness of Christ. This is the redemptive hope. Christ restructuring the world by means of casting out Satan and drawing all men to himself. We do not anticipate the victory of Antichrist, but the victory of Christ. Our hope is sure. It is secured in creation, covenant, prophecy, and redemption. And I don't have time for the last point, but come see me later. Thank you. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word, which is truth. We thank Thee that Thou hast given Thy Word to sanctify us. And Lord, we pray that Thou would sanctify us with the sure knowledge of the, uh, the worldview that derives from Scripture. May we be students of Scripture and of Christ. May we promote Thy will in the earth with great hope and vigor. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.